All right, everyone. So before we get into our study of Exodus as usual, I want to take just a moment to um, speak to the fathers out there and just to lift them up in a prayer of blessing. And so um, if you're there and you're a dad and your wife is there, your children, again, go ahead and right now just put your hand on them. If you're physically there, if you are not with your dad, Physically, they're somewhere else. Go ahead and you can just put your hand out. I want to read Ephesians 6.4 to you. This is the instruction from God's word in the New Testament to fathers. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So again, you don't have to be Christian to be a father but you have to be a Christian in order to fulfill God's call on fatherhood. And so that's a calling that is higher than if we were not believers in Jesus Christ. We have a special calling to be spiritual leaders in our home, and therefore you and I need spiritual resources to honor the Lord in our vocation as fathers. So again, if you're there, go ahead and put your hand on someone. If not, just reach your hand out. And I want to say this prayer of blessing. Heavenly Father, we come before you now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask for a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit to be on all earthly fathers represented here this morning. Lord, we know that You have blessed us. You have provided for us, Lord, to be the men that you've called us to be. But we confess that we too are sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, we pray that by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, we would be faithful witnesses in our homes. That we would be first and foremost disciples of Jesus Christ. That our families would know that he is number one in our lives that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, that we would be known as, if we are married, Lord, that we are faithful covenant partners. Lord, we just pray that you would bestow a blessing of the Holy Spirit on all fathers, single parents, adoptive parents, whoever it might be, grandparents. We just pray for your spirit to be upon them, so that they can play that role of a spiritual mentor now in this moment. Lord, I believe that the world is in need of spiritual leadership. I believe that so many lack spiritual guidance. They lack an earthly father and they lack a spiritual father. And so, Lord, we just pray for a blessing now that you would cause us to remember that we do not exist for our own desires, our own selves, Lord, but rather we are stewards of the children and grandchildren that you've given us. So enable us by the Holy Spirit to be faithful fathers in our generation, that when we go to see you one day face to face, with respect to our vocation as fathers, you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask for blessing. We ask for the grace to cover a multitude of our sins and failures. And we pray that Jesus would be high and lifted up in our homes to the best of our ability and beyond by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, so again, happy Father's Day, everyone. I hope you're going to have a a great day celebrating uh, with each other. We are going to continue our study of the book of Exodus this morning, but it'll be a a shorter message 
than usual. I know today, again, is usually a quite a celebratory day for many of you, and so you have plans to go to lunch and all things like that. So, um, But I do want to continue our study of the book of Exodus, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 14. And we're going to look at just, just verses 1 through 8 today. So Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. I'll read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into our study of God's Word this morning. So Exodus 14, 1 through 8. This is God's Word. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pihahirot, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal Zaphon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took six hundred choice chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning because we believe you have spoken. We believe you are a God who is still speaking today. The problem is not with your silence, but our inability to hear. So, Lord, I just pray that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches today. Lord, I believe that you have a message for each one of us. I believe that your word is a living word. It's living. It's active. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able, even now, in this moment, through the empowering of the Spirit, the illuminating work of the Spirit on the work of our hearts and minds, that you will reveal our hearts, Lord, that you can discern our thoughts and our motivations, the things that we struggle with in life, the things that we're facing, the temptations that we have. Lord, I just pray right now you would speak to every single person. I believe you love them. I believe you have a word for them. I believe they need a word from you. I believe we live in a very dire time. I believe that many things are going on right now that are going to shape future generations. And I believe that we as Christians, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, are called to be salt and light in our generation. So, Lord, I just pray for strength, I pray for courage, and I pray for the power to obey. We pray for a blessing now over this word, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, we're continuing our study of the epic book of Exodus, and again, this is a foundational book, not just for ancient Israel, but for the church today. If we want to understand basic things such as salvation, what does it mean 
to be lost? What does it mean to be a sinner? What does it mean to be saved? What does a saved like look like? Last week, we talked about how the grammar of faith for Christians is taken from the ABCs of the Hebrew Bible. We learn to speak the language of faith in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, we see it come to fruition in the person of of Jesus Christ. And so again, our understanding of who Jesus is and the church and the nature and the mission of the church is weakened if we don't understand the Old Testament. So again, though we live in a different time, we are not under this old covenant, um, yet we still, the new covenant is made clear through what God has done in and through Israel and the Old Covenant as well. So it's very important. Now, specifically where we are, again, I know many people know this story, even people who have never really read through the Bible on their own. They're very familiar with the Exodus story. So many movies uh, have been made about uh, Israel and its escape and the 10 plagues from Egypt. So where we are in the story is that the 10 plagues have already happened, including the final plague, which seemed to be the last straw. As hard-hearted and as stubborn as Pharaoh was, as wicked as he was, as selfish as he was, finally he had a breaking point. And that breaking point was the 10th and final plague, which was the death of the firstborn. And so we saw that after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh was finally willing to let the children of Israel go. And so they've been journeying. Now, we're not sure exactly how long, probably at least three days. Some people say more, but they've been journeying for a while. They've definitely got this head start. Then all of a sudden here in chapter 14, Pharaoh repents of his repentance. Pharaoh repents of his repentance. He's very like many of us. We, we might repent and then we repent of our repentance when we think about repentance actually costs us. So we see Pharaoh begin to change his mind and he's going to go after the Israelites once again. And that is where we are in chapter 14 today. So we won't go through all the events in chapter 14. We'll save that for next week, but we are going to look at verses one through eight a little bit in depth. So first of all, let's look at verses one and two. It says, now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihachirot, between Migdol and the sea opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. Um, so here's point number one, friends. Point number one God's ways are not our ways. That could be Christianity 101. God's ways are not our ways. And I know most of you know that, but honestly, write it down anyway. You probably need to be reminded. God's ways are not our ways. And what do I mean by that? Well, we actually have an example right here. So Israel has been fleeing Egypt. Um, again, we're not sure of their exact route. A number of these places haven't been located. Um, they probably won't be either. They were not major cities. They're, they're not spoken of anywhere. Again, they're just kind of you know, maybe areas where shepherds could possibly take their flocks, and that's about it. Um, so we don't know exactly where these are, but most scholars agree the general direction of Israel uh, from Ramses up near the Nile Delta was southeast and east. So southeast and east, or east by southeast, was the general direction that they've been going, and they've been going for a few days. Now, they're basically in a border area. They're right on the border. They're about to leave Egypt. 
And what do you think we would want to do? What would Israel want to do when you're fleeing Egypt and you get to the border? You cross over, right? You're fleeing Egypt. You get to the border. You cross over. That would be our ways. That would be Israel's ways. But friends, what does God call Israel to do here? <laughs> Notice what it says. It says, speak to the children of Israel that they turn. Uh, so the word can be return, turn around. And kind of from the, the, the specific, so it says, turning camp before uh, before the face of Pene, so literally before the face of Pihachirot, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Balzaphon, you shall camp before it by the sea. So what happened is they're journeying down, they're heading towards sea, and they literally turn around so that their back is towards the direction they want to go. God has literally told them to turn their back on the place they were going. God's ways are not our ways. So I think, again, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what God's doing. We are given some insight, but let's pause because, friends, God doesn't always give us a verses 4 and 5 in life, does he? God does not always tell us why he's having us turn our back on the very thing we thought we've been journeying for these last 10 years or whatever it is. So one of the things we always have to remember is that the Christian life, there's, there's logic to it. Certainly, we want to be reasonable people. We want to be logical people. We have the Bible. The Bible uses logic. It uses even basically logical syllogisms. I could actually show you where it does that. It takes for granted certain reasoning capacities. And there's an internal coherence. The Bible is a, a system. It's a story, but it's also a, a world of thought, a system, a spiritual culture. And there is logical thought within that world. And yet when we go to connect that to our lives out in the world, paying our bills, dealing with health problems, dealing with relationship problems, looking at the political world and the social world and seeing what's going on, we can sometimes feel like, man, these, these things don't connect. Like my way of dealing with this stuff out here, God, would be to do this and this, but God doesn't. He allows things to go on much longer than I think they should. He allows things to happen I don't think ever should be allowed to happen. I don't think God's people should be put in these positions of complete weakness and all that. But God's ways are not our ways. This is a part of faith, school of faith 101. And never forget that because it's always going to be that way throughout life. God's ways are not our ways. And we won't always know why. Sometimes we will be aiming at something in life. We will be journeying to something. We had a word from God on it. And all of a sudden, when we're about to reach that place, to have that thing, to get this out of our lives, to achieve this, to restore this, whatever it might be, God may ask us to turn around, to actually turn our back on the very thing we're sinking. And I think there we can say, despite the secondary temporal aspects of why God might do that, I think there's always a spiritual reason. And it's famously stated in the Shema of Israel, the famous statement of faith in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Sometimes God will tell us to turn our backs on the very thing that he wants us to achieve, that we've desired so deeply, because he wants to test us. 
He wants us to know, do you want the promised land most or do you want me most? What's best about the promised land? Is it the milk and honey? Would you enjoy the milk and honey if you live a godless life? Is, is, do you care about that? Does that matter to you? Would you rather go to the promised land, have milk and honey, but have a godless life? Or are you willing to turn your back and stay here in the wilderness, but know that I am with you? I think that's a real challenge, and I don't think that ever stops being a challenge. Many times the truth is when God calls us to turn from something that we've desired greatly, that we thought we had almost achieved, we, that's the moment when we realize, sort of like Lot's wife, God told them not to turn and she turns around. It's what do we want most? God will always bring those seasons and moments of life when we are challenged. Sometimes they're congruent. What we desire in this temporal world happens to go along with our walk with God. And those are always the most enjoyable times, generally speaking, when those two things seem to go hand in hand. But there will always be moments in life when we have to make a choice. When the things in this world that we desire greatly, and perhaps they're even good, and God's simply telling us to turn because he wants to know if we trust him and love him more than any earthly thing. God will do that in times, and he's doing it here. And this is going to continue throughout the life of Israel. The very idea of, of Israel going into the promised land, God is trying to train them that you need to believe in me. You need to keep me first. You can't have any other gods before me. You can't make a God out of anything in this world. You have to know, Israel, that God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We have to remember that. Because again, I, like I said, we are logical, reasonable creatures. I think that's good. We don't want to be unreasonable and illogical. But we have to remember that faith, God, transcends our basic human logic. Just because we're not aware of how God is going to do something. Just because we can't make sense out of it doesn't mean that there's no sense behind it. If God commands us to do something, I can guarantee you there's a reason. There is no more reasonable being in the universe than God. God is actually the only perfectly reasonable being. That's where reason ultimately comes from. It is we human beings who are either erroneous within our thinking or we simply do not have enough information. God does not lack for either. God is never unreasonable in his thinking and he never lacks information. So friends, remember, God's ways are higher than our ways. Remember that now. Maybe that's a word for some of you. You just can't understand why life has gone this way, why I'm in this place. Maybe a Father's Day. And again, I, I always wrestle with days like this because I, I know they can be a special day and happy day. And, you know, you're if you've got little kids, you know, it's just wonderful. Uh, but life can change. You know, you can grow up and have adult children and they abandon everything you taught them. They turn their back on you. They turn their back on the Lord. And so Father's Day can be a heartbreaking day. 
could be like like I lost my dad to cancer about 17 years ago now, if you can believe that. It seems like it's been forever. So when I think of a Father's Day, I'd love to celebrate it with my father, but he's been gone uh, for, for many years now. So I, I always wrestle with this. And sometimes in these moments, we can just feel that sense of incongruity. Man, I, I wouldn't have done it this way, God. I wouldn't have done it this way. I wouldn't have let them do this. I wouldn't have let this happen. I would have made this happen way, way, way later in life. Not, not now. But friends, I just want to encourage you this morning. God's ways are not our ways. They never have been. Once in a while, they'll seem to coincide. Those are sort of the, the easy, simple moments in life. But remember who we serve. We serve an infinite God, an omniscient God, a God who knows the end from the beginning. He declares all things. He will get history where he wants it to go. There are mysteries that we will never know until we go to see the Lord face for face. Many questions that we've asked that will always have a question mark on them until we go to see the face of the Lord. So I just want to encourage you with that this morning. Now, here is one of those exceptions in life where we do have insight into why God is doing what he's doing. But sometimes that doesn't make it easier. We assume if God would give us an answer into why he's telling us to turn our backs on the very thing we thought we were supposed to pursue in life and we were almost there, it was within our reach. Sometimes it makes it harder, makes it worse because God tells you and you're like, are you serious? Uh, let's look now at verses three and four. It says, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So there were Israel's almost out. They're right there on the border. They're about to cross over, leave, leaving, leaving the land of their oppression. God says, nope, turn around, turn your back on it. And here's why. I'm going to use you as bait for the enemy. I mean, I, I sure I could have put it in, you know, I, I, if I was really trying to defend God against, you know, God is more wise than me. I'm not in the business of trying to defend God. God can defend himself. I'm simply declaring what God says here. He simply says, Israel, I'm going to have you turn around, act like you're lost, and that's going to draw, entice Pharaoh, and he's going to come out. So it's it's kind of like bait. And so here's the lesson, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. Here's the lesson for you and I. Uh, first of all, uh, well, there's two lessons here. Never underestimate the depravity of a human heart. That's the first lesson. Never underestimate the depravity of a human heart. So what blows me away about this passage is, is Pharaoh and how he, he can just not let this go. There seems to be no bottom. He's just swirling down and down and down and down. You think there would be a bottom somewhere. And again, a lot of us talk about, you know, I wouldn't have come to the Lord till I hit bottom. Well, it, but, but what about those people where there seems to be no bottom? It just keeps going and going and going. So remember... Pharaoh, first of all, there, there was no conscience. He was able to enslave Israel and treat them horribly. So he, he was able to do that. Then God sent 
the nine plagues and the nine plagues. And we talked about how the first few didn't really affect him because he was, you know, lived in a palace, was high and mighty. You know, he didn't have to get his own water that, that turned to blood. So they had to travel further out and bring some. His servants did that. So kind of like politicians and power sometimes and very, very wealthy persons, their wealth and power and position enabled them to avoid a lot of the pain and suffering that the common people are experiencing. So we talked about how it kind of makes sense. The first few... Uh, plagues didn't really affect Pharaoh personally. It just affected everybody else. But eventually the plagues start affecting him and he just keeps hardening his heart and hardening his heart and hardening his heart again. Finally, you would think even if you're the most depraved, horrible, wicked sinner ever, when your firstborn son is killed because of you, you think you would repent. You, you would just think you would repent. But alas, friends, here we are in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Pharaoh comes to another place where he still finds room for more sin and more rebellion. I believe that this is an example of a greater biblical truth, which is that we are never to underestimate the depravity of the human heart. You know, a lot of modern people have a non-biblical, anti-biblical understanding of human nature. I would even say many Christians or churchgoers actually have a non-biblical, anti-biblical view of human nature. For many of them, their understanding of anthropology, human nature, has not been shaped by the Bible, but by the culture. And you can sort of study the history of thought. Um, there's uh, uh, the late pastor R.C. Sproul did a book called The Consequences of Ideas. And it's sort of a 30,000-foot flyover of philosophical history, the, the history of thought. But it's a great little read, and it kind of gives you these the key ideas of some of the key thinkers. And one of the movements of thought that we arrived at about 200 years ago, roughly around the time of the Enlightenment, was what we call Romanticism. And Romanticism had a particular view of human nature. And in Romanticism, Romanticism believes that human beings are born basically good. So against the Bible that says you're actually born in sin, and, and I'll give you some more Bible quotes to back this up, but it's an anti-biblical position that says human beings are good. And when human beings go bad, it's not because they were born bad, it's because you were a bad parent or they didn't have enough toys growing up or you didn't take them to the park enough times or you didn't put them in enough sports or you put them in too many sports or you didn't live in the right neighborhood or you didn't drive the right car or, or whatever, or society didn't do this, this, that, and the other. And so basically the finger gets pointed everywhere else except with the individual. There's no individual responsibility in extreme forms of romanticism because the underlying belief, which many people don't even talk about, so you can't even engage in social conversations about politics or anything else because the theological or philosophical ground underneath the soil is rotten and it has to be addressed first. So in romanticism, human beings are born basically good and the only thing that is wrong again is environment. Now, obviously, I want to point out that it's true that environmental factors matter. Of course, we want to acknowledge that. We want to acknowledge, as we are today in Father's Day and why we prayed over our fathers, we have a strong impact on children, on the children that we raise, that society and political uh 
postures and policies and, and things like this, they have an impact on people. Yes, Christians, we can agree with that. Where we must refuse to agree, where we must disagree, because the Bible disagrees, is the idea that there's no individual responsibility and that the, hum the individual human being is born good. The Bible says that's not true. Human beings are not born basically good because of sin. Now, there was a time when that was true. It was called the Garden of Eden before the serpent came in, deceived the woman, both Adam and Eve sinned and fell and were kicked out of the banishment of God. And the next thing you know, you got the first murder in human history. And then there's a history of violence basically uh, up until the present day, just to sum it up quickly. So the Bible teaches, no, in addition to environmental factors and public policy, families, etc., etc., the individual bears responsibility and the seeds for chaos and corruption are not just out there somewhere. They are in here. They are in every human heart. So according to the Bible, hypothetically anyway, you could have perfect parents who do everything right read you the Bible, love you, bathe you, feed you, clothe you, raise you, give you all their time, sacrifice for you, give up uh, doing things they would like to do in their career or, or traveling in order to stay home and, and you can put you in the best school that there is and you can get a high paying job and, and you could have political power and yet that will not make you good. That actually evil can find occasion through all of those things. There is no guarantee according to the Bible, that if environment is good enough, if the laws are good enough, that human beings will be good. The Bible says that's a lie. Now, let me give you, and there's many examples, but let me just give you one key text. And that is Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, and this is the NLT. I memorized it in the New King James, but I thought a different wording would be refreshing. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked, who really knows how bad it is? That's not a romantic view of human nature. Again, uh, the New King James is the heart is desperately deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. The Bible has a completely different view. Again, in the romantic view, and there's extreme forms today. Maybe you've heard of some of this. I can't remember the precise name for it, but there's a parenting movement that believes it's harmful to ever use the word no to children. You should never say no. Now, that sounds kind of crazy to a lot of us, especially um, uh, those of us that come generations before. That sounds a little crazy. Um, but again, how, how did they arrive at that place? It's this idea of romanticism. Children are good. And, and so just let them fly into all the good that they want to pursue. The Bible says, no, there's Proverbs says foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child and the rod or discipline will help to save them from it. So again, the human heart, never underestimate the depravity of the human heart. We see it with Pharaoh. Time and time again, God speaks to Pharaoh. Time and time again, God judges Pharaoh. And even when the most critical, the most dire, the most weighty of punishments comes upon Pharaoh, yet he finds a new way to descend lower and lower and lower. It is though he hit bottom and then the bottom falls out and he just keeps going. Never underestimate that. Again, I say this, I can say this to, to parents because again, I know some wonderful Christian parents out there. 
Again, were they perfect people? Absolutely not. But they did the best they could. They loved the Lord. They honored God. And their children still went bad. Again, if you don't understand that there was the seeds of wickedness in their own heart from day one, you're probably going to beat yourself up and blame yourself every time your kid does something wrong. That's not the case. Again, we take responsibility absolutely as parents and, and citizens, and yet we also recognize that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can deal with the wickedness of a human heart. Only the gospel can do that. I think this is very important for Christians to think about socially and politically. If you believe that human beings are basically good, then all kinds of governmental systems, I think, become plausible. If you're not worried about power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely, as Lord Acton famously said, then you, you could say, well, hey, this form of government's better and this form of government and this law looks good and this law... But friends, I think as Christians, we need to have a very biblical worldview. And that biblical worldview, it won't tell you what proposition to vote on and everything in American modern politics, but it's going to shape how we look at the world. And it's going to shape our principles and our beliefs and our values and our convictions. And therefore, us as believers, we understand that law is very, very important. Not because it converts the heart. We know that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. But law is very important for Christians because we believe, Jeremiah 17, 9. We believe that if you remove all constraints, you remove all laws, you're not going to have goodness flourish. You're going to have evil flourish. Because that's rooted in a biblical worldview of anthropology, human nature, according to the Bible. And so here we see this picture with Pharaoh. Never underestimate the depravity of a human heart. That is why we need God's laws. It's why we need God's morals. It's why we need civil law. It's why we need civil government. It's why God instituted it to restrain and limit evil and to stop people from being as evil as they want to be. Now, again, civil law, as I've said recently on one of our Wednesday night messages, civil law is always the moral minimum. It's, it's not the high standard. The Bible is. Civil law is the moral minimum. It's the bare minimum. It doesn't stop people from doing evil. I mean, good grief. There's all kinds of legal evil people do all day long, every single day. And the culture values these evil things that are legal. So again, it's only certain things that are evil and illegal. So as Christians, we have to have a view that isn't just equal to the world's political view. It meets the world's political view, it understands it, it comprehends it, but it contributes and demands a biblical worldview in response to it. That's where Christians are. We don't throw out our biblical values to meet the world where it's at. Because again, it has fundamentally anti-biblical principles and worldview. Never underestimate the depravity of a human heart. Take it into account in your life, both in your home. That's why discipline is necessary. Loving but firm discipline, boundaries for your children. We, we do say no. We believe it's loving to say no many times. And even if they don't like it, again, uh, love is willing to, to have someone say they don't like you in order to make sure that the best thing is actually done for them. And this is the same thing true in the political sphere. 
Now, another point I want to make. So this will be point number three, but it's coming from verses three and four. Point number three is this. One reason God allows his people to be attacked is so that God may be glorified in victory. Let me say this again. One reason, it's not the only one. There's others in the Bible. But one reason God allows his people to be attacked is so that God may be glorified in victory. Now look real quick at verse 4b, second half of verse 4. It says, this is the Lord, And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Notice that. So he told Israel in verses 1 and 2 to turn their back on the very place, on their goal, on their journey, where they were heading, and turn around. And now we're told why. And the reason is, God is literally, as I said, again, you know, putting it, I mean, turned around. He's like baiting it. He's baiting Pharaoh. Turn around. Act like you're confused and you're lost in the desert. You're just helpless. Oh, gosh, we don't know where we're going. And that's going to arouse Pharaoh, and he's going to come charging out at you. So I want you to notice something, friends. And we're, we're told this here, and I believe it holds true in the New Testament as well. When you and I are under spiritual attack, it's important that we have biblical possibilities in our mind. So, Because one of the immediate things that we tend to do, and this is true for new believers as well as seasoned believers, when we're under spiritual attack, we can easily revert to things such as God's punishing me. I, I must have done something wrong. Um, clearly, I wouldn't be under spiritual attack unless I was doing something wrong. Um, friends, I mean, that, is that a possibility? Sure, that's a possibility. But that's very, very nearsighted. That's very myopic. The Bible gives a number of reasons why, and a number of them are actually positive. In other words, when you experience spiritual attack, spiritual attack, it's not a sign you're doing something bad. It's actually, it could be a sign that God is doing something good, that you are standing for something. Jesus told you, blessed are you who, when they persecute you, you will be persecuted. A servant is not greater than his master. So, so Jesus told us, and he said, we're blessed. It doesn't feel blessed to be persecuted. And at the same time, that we're getting to suffer for Jesus is a blessing because if we love him, we want to be like him. And he suffered in the flesh for us. So file this away. Some of you are going through a spiritual attack right now. I want you to prayerfully consider this. For those of you that maybe you're not going through a spiritual attack now, but I want to prep you for it when it comes. Make sure you don't just immediately revert to the thought, God's punishing me. In the Bible, there are several reasons why God would do it in a positive sense. And here's one of them. That God allows his people to be attacked so that God may be glorified in the victory. Now again, I don't think this feels good. I know that God has done this in my life personally, in my family's life, um, friends of mine, churches for that matter, and they've been put in a bad position where they were targeted. Um, I'm concerned, friends, that as things begin to change, if there's increasingly anti-Christian, anti-biblical rhetoric, if religious freedom, religious freedom of speech, if these things are attacked, you're going to see more and more Christians being attacked. 
Uh, I was recently told by a Canadian pastor that a law was just passed um, that essentially will bar them from teaching a biblical view of sexuality. It'll actually be illegal to teach what the Bible says about human sexuality. Now, when that actually happens, and again, that hasn't quite happened to us, but it, it certainly could. I'm not paranoid or fearful about it, but I'm also not naive. I know it's definitely a possibility. So let's say that that moment comes. Now, we might be tempted to say, gosh, God, why are you allowing this? What did we do wrong? If we had just done things wrong, you wouldn't allow the government to, to try to attack us and to say we... That's not necessarily true, friends. We know it from this text right here. Sometimes God will actually use you, will use the church to draw the enemy in. The enemy will actually set its sights on you or us in order that God may grant the victory and the glory to his name. That God's people turn to him and they look to God and they say, Lord, be our refuge, be our fortress, be our tower, glorify yourself. We want to know that God is ultimately the one defending us. Many times, sure, we'll try to defend ourselves, but at the end of the day, I want to know God is defending me. That's what I want to know. I want to know that my ultimate defense is not me. It's not my effort. It's not my ability to argue and to reason and, and to fight and to be, you know, savvier than my opponent or whatever. I want to believe. I want to know. I want to experience that God is the one granting the victory, that he is the one doing it. So we see here with Israel exactly why God told them to turn their back on their goal. And it was in order to draw an attack from the enemy. And that wasn't sadistic. It's not so Israel will be destroyed or wiped out or because they did something wrong or because God hated them. No, it is about the glory of his name. So for us, there are reasons to rejoice when we, spirit, when we experience spiritual attack. We know in the New Testament, in the book of James, that God also uses trials and he uses spiritual attack to cause us to grow inwardly. James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you go through various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and patience character and character hope and hope does not disappoint for the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. God is doing great things for the glory of his name and the benefit of his people when we experience spiritual attack. And lastly, we'll look at point number four when we study verses five through eight. It says, now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Point number four is this. True repentance is not deterred by the cost. True repentance is not deterred by the cost. Notice what it says at the end of verse five. This is Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh's reasoning. Okay. So he had let Israel go. Kind of looks like an outward repentance, but he's repenting of his repentance. Now, why did he do that? 
He says, Why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? In other words, what Pharaoh recognized, all of a sudden it hit him. It seems as though perhaps, I'd say quite likely, he was preoccupied with grief. He had lost his firstborn son, and so had all the land of Egypt. So they had something drawing their attention in that moment, and they were preoccupied with their grief. But after a few days, perhaps a week or two, suddenly their thoughts begin to wander from, what, from that loss, and they begin to think about what it cost them to repent. What did it cost Pharaoh in order to let Israel go? And suddenly he's realizing the cost is too high. Friends, true repentance is costly. True repentance is costly. Regret and repentance are not the same thing. Regret is more about calculation. Regret simply, it can look like repentance on the outside, but regret simply lines things up, calculates, and says, does this weigh more than this? Oh, I shouldn't have done this because look what this happened. That's simply regret. And anybody can regret. A non-believer can regret and cry their eyes out and everything else, but that's not repentance. Because all they're doing is calculating the cost. And the cost is whether it benefits them most. But biblical repentance, true repentance, is not deterred by the cost. Repentance calculates not the cost, but what is right. When Jesus told what the cost of discipleship was, he shared it with people. And we know that when Jesus shared the cost of discipleship, many, like Pharaoh, turned away. They were seemingly seeking it, but then when they realized what the cost of repentance was, they turned away. Jesus said, unless you forsake your father, mother, sister, children, wife, yes, your own life also, you're not worthy of me. And the text of scripture will often say, and many followed him no more. You know, many people would come to Jesus and say, oh, I have many possessions. Good, you've done well. Sell everything you have and follow me. And the young man went away, sad, for he had great possessions. One man said, I'll follow you, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. And the man turns away and walks away. Jesus continually puts out the cost of repentance. And the cost of repentance is high. But we don't sit there and calculate. Well, I don't know if I really want to repent. It, might, it could mean this. If I say I'm sorry to my spouse, then they'll, they'll use this against me and they'll do this. And I don't know that that's worth it. Friends, that is not repentance. We will know true repentance because it lasts. We know it's simply regret when somebody seems to repent for a time, but when it costs them, when they realize what it will mean, because perhaps they didn't get it at first. They just saw the plus side of the cost through initially saying, I'm sorry. My little children, you know, we teach them to say sorry, but then you almost wonder if I should do that to some point, because now they just know it's a word it's, it's not necessarily from the heart. It's a word that kind of gets things done, but then they can really not be sorry and just go back to doing it again. It's more like I want to teach them the word sorry, what it means, and, and then not push the word on them, but because the goal is not for them to just say it, because that could be just regret. What I want to see is true repentance. 
And so what we see with Pharaoh is that there was no true repentance. All there was was regret. And in the end, somebody who just regrets will repent of their repentance. True repentance does not care what the cost is. True repentance believes that when something it is right, it is worth abandoning what is wrong, and it is worth giving everything to pursue what is right. Repentance is a way of life. It is not simply a momentary act here and there, but rather the whole of the Christian life, as Martin Luther famously said, is to be one long act of repentance. Yes, friends, repentance is costly. Whether you're a believer this morning and you know that you're in sin, you, you know that you're saved, you have the Spirit of God, you belong to God, you're, you know, basically a good person from earthly standards and, you know, got a nice family and you go to church and, you know, you, you do Christian acts of charity and things like that. But you know there's some areas of your life that are wrong. They're, they're sin. You're not putting God first. Um, you're becoming worldly, the, perhaps the deceitfulness of riches. Maybe it's just the cares of this world. Remember, this is stuff Jesus warned about. And it's the kind of thing that chokes out fruitfulness in your life as a Christian. Maybe there's some things that he's calling you to repent from. But you you reckon the cost. You think, oh, I don't. I don't know. That, that, that would be hard. That'd be hard to do. I don't know. I'd have to change my lifestyle. You know, I'm not used to that. And gosh, and maybe I'm willing, but maybe, you know, I'm married and my spouse won't be happy with it. So I don't think I can repent because they won't be happy. And then the cost won't just be the thing. It'll be how they respond to me repenting. And then that's going to be a pain. And I can't live with that. How many uh, husbands and wives have I heard tell me that? That a reason they won't repent is not because they don't recognize or even desire to repent in a certain area, live differently, turn and head the direction God wants them to go, but they don't want to put up with the fact their spouse does not want to repent also. And so they're like, well, I can't repent because they're, they're not going to repent and it'll just, it'll just be a problem. But again, friends, I believe we are called to repent because it is right. And true repentance always comes at a cost. For any of you that might not be followers of Jesus, again, I don't want to deceive you and lead you astray in saying that if you come to the Christian life, you can have all the things you want and you don't have to let go of anything and you get Jesus thrown in. Friends, that's not true. We know that Jesus himself was very upfront. There was no fine print with Jesus. I really appreciate that about Jesus. You know, all these other, you know, religious leaders and, and just people in life, they don't give you the fine print up front. They'll present the very best version or image of themselves hide all the, the bad stuff, and then once you're locked into a contract or a marriage or whatever, then they just dump all the bad stuff on people. Jesus told us exactly how hard it would be right up front. Unless you forsake your father, mother, sister, brothers, wife, and children, yes, your own life also, you're not worthy of me. He told us up front, following me is going to cost you everything. To repent of worldliness doesn't mean stop getting drunk, you know, stop cussing, stop whatever, not, not reading your Bible. That That's no, that those are parts of it. That's a part of it. But no, a lifestyle of repentance is one that acknowledges my life is not my own. The big coming to Jesus moment is when you realize it's not one area of your life that's wrong. It's the entire thing. That's the, that's the place I had to come. For me, growing up as a young man, sin was 
you know, lowercase s plural sins. It was just, you know, okay, this is wrong, but if you're not doing that thing, then you're not in sin. And if you do this thing here, that's sin. But if you're not doing it, that's not sin. When I, what God had to bring me to was a place in my young adult life when I understood sin with a capital S singular. It's when I realized it was not just these individual acts, doing them or not doing them, but it was an entire godless way of life. It was my motivations, my desires, my chief aim and goal, the greatest desire of my heart was wrong. And coming to Christ, it was like, Lord, I confess of the whole thing. I even confess, I don't even know of all the little things I'm probably doing wrong or the good things I should be doing that I'm not. I don't even know of all of them. I just know I'm wrong about the whole thing. And I want to repent as a way of life. I want to belong to Jesus in body, mind, and spirit. I want to follow him. I want to be his people. I want to go where he wants me to go. If he wants to lead me through a desert, then I want to go through a desert. If he wants to lead me to the promised land, then I want to go to the promised land. If he tells me to turn my back on the promised land one second before I get there because he wants to use me to bring glory to himself, then I want to be able to turn around, turn my back on my earthly goals so that my heavenly father can be glorified. That is what true repentance is. And I believe that this is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit has to do this. This is something no parent can do. No parent can be the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can change a sinner's heart. No law, no government, no system of laws can change a human heart. No law, no parent can take away the problem of Jeremiah 17.9 the desperately and deceitful heart, wicked above all things, that is so bad no one can fully know it. Only the Spirit of God. We have to repent of a wicked heart. And we have to pray that the Lord will give us a heart that beats for him, that values his kingdom, that trusts the Lord, that recognizes his ways are not our ways, that God will allow spiritual attack in our lives, not because he hates us, but because he wants to bring glory and honor to his name through the victory he's going to give each and every one of us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be assured, friends, we have the victory. Because Jesus took all the forces of Pharaoh and Egypt and the world upon himself on the cross. And in his resurrection, he defeated them. And the end of the Bible, we know that we win, that the Lord has victory. He will return for his people. We will belong to him forever. And everything we truly desire is actually satisfied and fulfilled in him. So this Father's Day, friends, I just pray that we would receive the gift of our Heavenly Father which is a gift of a closer, more intimate walk with him. And that that is what you and I would impart to the next generation, the need for Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without witness, but you have spoken your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who preaches the word of God to our hearts so that this does not remain the word of men, but rather as it is in truth, the word of God. And so, Lord, I just pray now that the Holy Spirit would touch hearts, that you would move us, Lord. 
I pray that we would be moved in body, mind, and spirit, our intellect, our emotion, and our will. There would not be one part of us, a mind that acknowledges, but a will that refuses, and a will that is ready, but a mind that rejects. Lord, help us in body, mind, and spirit, intellect, emotion, and will to give ourselves fully and completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray for anyone right now who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They have not confessed that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, that they have a wicked heart. Perhaps they've told themselves, and the world's told them this plenty of times, so they believed it, that they were basically good. And therefore, if they just keep being basically good, they will go to heaven when they die. But Lord, the Bible tells us that's a lie. No one is basically good. No one is righteous. No, not one. We have all gone astray. And so, Lord, I just pray if anyone is out there and they've been lied to by the world, Lord, the the bar has been set so incredibly low. Anyone can get over it, but it is not your bar. It is not your standard. Your standard is Jesus Christ. Perfect obedience in everything, actively and passively in all the will of God. And only Jesus Christ accomplished that for us. The rest of us fall short of your glory. We are outside your kingdom. We are outside your will and your goodness. We need the Holy Spirit to unite us to Christ that we might have a new heart that is able to live and work for you. So if there's anyone out there who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they would like to receive him, Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you're out there, if this is you, you can say this out loud or in the quietness of your heart, just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner and that you are a great Savior. I believe there is only one God and that you are the Son of God. I believe you lived a sinless and perfect life. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will come again. I confess that my life is not my own. I have been bought at a price. And so the rest of my life is to glorify you. I ask for your help in the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen.